Well, again, good morning. So glad that you're here with us. I'm Nathan, the campus pastor here. It's uh, great as we sort of continue this time as we've uh, been in open here. I've been doing that this month. Hopefully the reading is going well. Uh, For those of you who don't know, we're committed together as a church to read a chapter every day. uh, And we're going through the whole story of the Bible uh, from Genesis to Revelation. And kids, I just want to say as well, glad that you are, are here with us. Hope you picked up uh, one of these note sheets on your way in. Uh, it's called Kid Connect. It's kind of our way of helping kids engage. Uh, and if you're newer here, let me just tell you, if you fill this out uh, or, you know, do your best or whatever, um, you know, bring it to me afterwards and uh, we've got candy. So you can do that. And also, if you're a grown-up and you like filling in the blank and you want to pick up the kid sheet, go for it. It's all right. We'll make fun of you a little bit, but it's, you know, it can't be that bad. Uh, but if that's, if that's more your style of note-taking, then absolutely go. I, I know that we have quite a few adults that do that. I'm giving, you know, go for it. Do it. So that helps you. So, um, but no candy if you're a grown-up. Sorry. <laughs> Although, you know, again, you know, we're so glad kids are a part of our service and, and we want you to, to feel a part. That's why we do these things, to really engage with us, to believe and to feel like this is your, your church home. Although a couple of uh, months ago, I asked David, my son, I asked, what was your favorite part of my sermon? And, you know, he's getting older, okay, so, you know, starting to, to pay attention a, a little tiny, tiny bit, and, and I like to flatter myself, you know, uh, and I was convinced that that week I just, you know, knocked it right out of the park, and so, uh, so I asked, David, what was, what was your favorite? And he thought about it, and I, I'm getting kind of excited, okay, he's actually thinking about this, like he's taking this question, what, and he, and he says to me, he's like, Dad, my favorite part was that I knew I'd get candy when it was over, Nice, nice. It brought me right back down where I, I needed, needed to be. Uh, but kids, candy's not the goal. Just for the record, candy is, is what's called shameless bribery. Uh, it's a benefit, uh, but it is not the goal. Uh, the goal is that you would grow up in a place of, of people of, of all ages, together, gathered around, worshiping this God, learning how to engage with him in a variety of ways. That, that, that's our goal uh, for this. But kids, you're not, you're not the only ones who confuse benefits with goals. I mean, we grown-ups do that all the time, don't we? I mean, all kinds of areas we mix up benefits and goals. I mean, one easy example is, is marriage, right? What, what is the goal of marriage? Now, I mean, the ultimate goal is to reflect God, right, and to, to know God. But what's, what's the relational goal? Is it, is it companionship? Is it so that you can have a little bit of help? Or is it, is it a family or, or, or sex or, or my own personal satisfaction? I mean, imagine if, if when I proposed to Kelly, if I had said, you know, hon, I'm just really lonely. And life is hard. I need somebody. And one day I'd like to start a family. I, I really need somebody to iron my Sunday clothes for as long as we both shall live. Uh, you know, rom- romantic, right? You know, it just wouldn't go over that well. Those are all benefits, I mean, you can decide who does the ironing in your house. But those are all benefits. None of, those, none of those are the goal. The goal is to know and be known. To be in intimate relationship with one another. And if all I do, or even just primarily, if I focus on what I get from Kelly, then it's degrading. Because Kelly is the goal. Not what I get from her. Are you following that so far? Okay, so then... 
ask another question. Think about this. What's the goal of being a Christian? How would you answer that? Is it, you know, doing good works together? Being a part of a, a community? Is it, is it that we maybe feel a little bit better about ourselves? Is it, is it forgiveness? Is, is the goal heaven or, or hope? Why are you a Christian? Think about that. Because those things are all benefits. Not one of them is the goal. And and the story that we just heard read, or just that small part of this huge story in Exodus, we see what the goal is. The goal of everything. And it's really simple, honestly. Uh, The goal of your life and mine, the reason that we were created, the reason that, that God rescued us and redeemed us, the very goal for everything God is the goal. That's it. God himself is the goal. Not not what we get from God. Not what he promises to us. Not what he has rescued us from. And not all the good that he is leading us towards. He himself is the goal. And sure, we're thankful for the benefits, right? Just as I really am thankful that Kelly is willing to iron my Sunday clothes. But we can't focus on what we get It's degrading because he himself is our goal. And really, that's just just how it works in any meaningful relationship. Now, this story, it's really the the whole first half of the book of Exodus, Exodus 1 through 15. And and you're going to be reading these. You've already started. we'll, We'll be reading all of these chapters together over the next couple of weeks And really, the story that we see here is the model for God's rescue in the Old Testament. This story was to the Israelites a little bit like the cross is to us. I mean, it it is the high point. It is the focus of which everything came back to this incredible moment 3,500 years ago. This is their story of salvation. The burning bush, the plagues, The Passover, the the parting of the Red Sea, it's all right here. And the goal of it all, and the goal of every rescue thereafter, even ours through Christ, God is the goal. That we may know him, relationship with him. And as we zero in particular in Exodus chapter 6, if you have your Bibles turned there, that's where we're going to focus in. Uh, This is a big story. We're just going to look at a handful of verses in particular. But as we look at Exodus 6, we're going to ask three questions. Who is our God? What is salvation? And what difference does it make? Who is our God? If God is the goal, we've we've got to begin there. We've got to begin with him. Who is he really? Now, so far as a church, we've we've only made it through Genesis, okay? Uh, Not not very much in the grand scheme of things. Uh, And yet we've learned quite a bit about about God. I mean, don't worry, we're we're still on schedule. Um, We're going to keep moving forward as we cover this, this entire story. But we've learned a lot in Genesis already. We've learned that that God is the creator of all things, that he made us for himself. But we rebelled against him. We learned with the story of Abraham that he is God Almighty. He says, I am El Shaddai, if you remember that. The God who is absolutely sufficient. 
And God makes these incredible promises to Abraham to redeem people through his family. And then last week we saw with, with Joseph that, that ours is a God who will use any situation to bring about his promises, to fulfill what, what he has, has purposed from all eternity for us. We saw that with, with Joseph. And now in Exodus, God reveals himself in a new way. Really, he just sort of adds to, to what we've already seen in Genesis. But first, kind of got to start the stage, set the stage a little bit, uh, because a lot's happened since last week. 400 years has happened. Because when we ended last week, even though this was just the previous page in our Bible, I mean, we left 70 Israelites, that's all there were, flourishing in the land of Egypt. I mean, it wasn't their promised land, but if you remember Joseph, he, he rescued all of Egypt and he rescued his family by, by knowing that this, this famine was coming. And there they were in their temporary home, flourishing together. Everything was fine. But 400 years has gone by. I mean, time flies when you're enslaved. Because the people multiplied abundantly, it says. And then in Exodus 1, verse 8, it says that there was a new pharaoh. A new king in town who didn't remember who Joseph was. And so they made the Jews their slaves. And just think about that for a moment. I mean, this, this past week with, with Martin Luther King Jr., we, we tried to explain just a tiny bit to our kids. Just a, just a little bit about civil rights, about, about slavery. And even as the words once again left my mouth, I mean, I was just appalled, right? Remembering I mean, the kind of, of abuse of power to an impress, oppress and enslave an entire race of people. What must that have been like for the Israelites? People of the promise. These are, these are God's people, and they'd heard the stories. The stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and Joseph, all the promises that God had made to them, which must have sounded more like urban legends to them at this point than anything, because they are in the most horrible of oppression. But God hears their cries in Egypt. He remembers his promises to them, and there, in a, in a burning bush, God calls Moses to lead his people out. And that, that happened earlier on in, in Exodus. And at the burning bush, God, for the first time, tells Moses, tells his people his name. And that comes up again in verse, chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. This, is, this section here, this is a speech. This is before all the plagues happen. This is the speech sort of a conversation between God and Moses. And we get a sort of eavesdrop in on it. And God says to Moses in 6 verse 2, he says, I am the Lord, Yahweh. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. God is the goal, but who is God? I mean, he, he's the God who, who hears our cries, he says. He's the God who remembers his promises to us. 
But even more importantly in this text, he says, I am the Lord. What what does that mean? I mean, for us, that seems, you know, sort of, sort of commonplace. I mean, what, what's really happening here? Well, if you're taking notes, write this down. Who, who is our God? God, our God, is God is. Which in some ways, right, kind of sounds like a non-answer, right? Say God is. But really, essentially, that's what God tells Moses there at the burning bush. Who am I? I am, is what he says. Uh, the Hebrew word there is, is Yahweh. There weren't really any vowels in Hebrew, so I'm writing it like that, Yahweh, which literally just means I am, which is how God would say it from our perspective, right? God is, I am. Um, just a little, a little tip, when, you, when you're reading your Bibles, anytime you see LORD in all caps, it's the way the translators translate God's name, Yahweh. So anytime you see Lord, all caps, it's Yahweh. Because there, in, in that scene, okay, when, when God is, is talking to Moses in this burning bush, right? Such an amazing, you know, confusing scene, right? God, Moses asks God, he says, who are you? Which maybe to us sounds like a kind of a silly question, but in that land where they have all kinds of gods for everything, right? In Egypt, Moses is really asking, which God are you? I mean, who do I tell the people has sent, has sent me? And God's response, I am, I am. I am who I am. I am the God who is. By, by revealing himself as Yahweh, he's saying, I am the only God. I am God alone. And Moses, I will show you and the people of Israel and us that I am God alone. So God is the goal. Who is our God? He is the God who is. What about salvation then? I mean, if, if God is the goal, what does it mean to be rescued by him? Well, it comes out so beautifully in these next three verses, really where we're going to spend our time. Verses six through eight are what God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel. They're kind of planning his, his speech to them. And God is very specific about what he wants Moses to say. And in these, these three verses, we see two I am statements. Sandwich, and, and, and in between sandwich there is seven I will statements. Okay, I am, seven I wills, I am. In fact, it might be helpful for us just to sort of chart it out a little bit because I think there's something really significant about what God is doing. So in verse 6, this this speech begins with, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. And then, I I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, seven times. And the the first three I wills, we can group together. They're very similar. And then there's two more I wills that we can group together. And then there's two more I wills at the end. Okay, so the, the speech is, the thing that, that God wants Moses to hear, Moses to communicate, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I will deliver you from Egypt to the promised land. 
And right there in the middle, he tells us why. And he says, it's for me, is what he says. I mean, essentially, he's alluding to this fact that God is the goal. Anytime God rescues, whether it's in the Old Testament, the New Testament, whether it's, it's for us now today, when God delivers us, he always delivers us from, to, and for. Always. From, to, and for. Let's, let's first talk about this deliverance from because when God saves us, he saves us from something. That's what it says there in verse 6. God says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Every time God rescues, he rescues us from, from the old way. From, from the dark and dank thing that used to be, he always rescues us from. For the Israelites, he is rescuing them from their slavery. He is rescuing them from the heavy yoke of the Egyptians. And it's amazing. I mean, if you know this story, it's, it's remarkable. Because after this speech is where we begin to see these, these ten plagues or disasters that, that God sends on the people of Egypt to convince them to let his people go. Really to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. Ten things. And, you know, if you can think about, okay, so first, the, the Nile River turns to blood. That's disaster number one. And then there are frogs. And then there are gnats. And then there are flies. And, like, everywhere. You know, of plague proportion, right? Everywhere. And then it goes to the death of the livestock. They're a little bit out of order in the picture. Where the livestock just start dying. And then everybody in Egypt gets these terrible boils. Covering their whole bodies. Painful, itchy boils. And then there are locusts. And then there is hail. Um, I think I reversed those two. Um, and then there's total darkness. And then really the, the grand finale, the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn in all the land of Egypt, the firstborn son. And at, at first glance, I mean, we see a picture like that, or we think about what God is doing, it almost seems sort of random. You know, like God is just sort of picking out of a hat, you know, random disasters to, to inflict on these people, almost, almost as if he is sort of just being cruel to them. But God is acting with great intention in this moment. Because every one of these plagues is ultimately a direct attack on the Egyptians' gods. Because Egypt, their gods, and Egypt is the most powerful nation on the planet in that day. Their gods should have had all this. They should have been able to protect Egypt from Yahweh. But they couldn't. And so what Yahweh is doing, what our God is doing in that moment, as, as random and perhaps even cruel as it may seem to us, he is showing the people. He's showing Egypt, he's showing Pharaoh, he's showing the Israelites who he's about to lead out to the promised land that I am God alone. I am Yahweh. There is no match for this God. And so he, he shows them that by showing them his strength. His strength. 
And throughout biblical history, I mean, this would be the go-to story uh, for God's rescue in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, frankly. I mean, this, this picture of what he rescues us from. I mean, the New Testament's a little bit, it's a little bit different, um, but they would, the writers would pick up on it and talk about how you and I, like the Egyptians, that we are enslaved to our sin, that we have a master even worse than Pharaoh, even, even crueler, even more oppressive, our own sin and this bondage we have to death. But God is stronger, and we have been saved from sin and death and hell. But sometimes that's all we think salvation is about. You know, fire insurance. And I I guarantee in this room that there's a good number of us who when we were kids asked Jesus into our hearts simply because we were terrified of the alternative, right? Yeah? Yeah, some of us, right? Uh, And we do want to be saved from, don't we? Uh, Not going to hell is a really big perk, isn't it, of, of being a Christian? But it's not the goal. Just a benefit. Or, or maybe even as you think about being saved from something, maybe for you it's, it's your, your guilt. Man, you want to be saved from your guilt. I want to be saved from my guilt, absolutely. Things I've done wrong, mistakes I've made, the people that I hurt, the people that I love the most, who I... Just keep hurting. Of course we want to be safe from. And this God offers us forgiveness. Why, why wouldn't I want that? Or maybe, maybe as you think about it, maybe you, just, you want to be saved from your sin in a different way. Now, it's not just guilt. You just want freedom from it. I mean, you know the oppressive nature and you're tired of the things that you do. You're tired of the way they make you feel, the way they make the people around you feel. And this God offers freedom. Of course we want to be saved from but those are just benefits. I mean, yes, they're all true and good, but they're part of of what God offers to us. We have been rescued from, from from salvation, you know, that God is is stronger than Egypt and God is stronger than, than sin and death and hell, absolutely. But that's not the goal. We praise God for his benefits, but he has so much more in store for us than just that. Now, let's, let's skip over this middle section. We'll, we'll get there in a minute, but I think we need to first talk about what we are saved to, what he brings us towards. Because whenever he saves us from something, he doesn't just sort of leave us there, right? They're not, they're not staying in Egypt around these horrible people who want to oppress them, but, you know, aren't, they're not slaves. No, he always saves us to something else. The same is true for us. We're not just forgiven our sins. We're, we're given a new, a new life. A new opportunity. We see that in, in 6 verse 8. God says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And for the Israelites, I mean, this would happen, right? They, they would cross over the Red Sea. What an what a unbelievably, just incredible miracle that, that would have been, Right? This entire body of water parting, dry ground, and the people just walk through. 
And eventually they would make it to the promised land. It would, it would take them a while because, you know, they really messed it along the way. But eventually they would get there. And the promised land is always meant to be this, this picture of the restoration that God offers. The land we lost in Eden, God is giving a glimmer of it back to his people. By giving them this, this land, this life, this new hope, a place of flourishing. And when we experience salvation from God is always leading us to something better. Something that begins now and extends on to eternity. He, he saves us to something, to, to a new place, a new, a new life, a new circumstance. And if you're, if you're a follower of Christ, it isn't just what you've been saved from that's so great. It's also what we're being saved to that we are in the process of being saved too. I mean, have we, I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, have we embraced both of these sides of our salvation? Not only from, but to, to a new life, to, to being changed, to experiencing a new kind of wholeness, to, to actually beginning to live the life that God calls us to. He doesn't, he doesn't save us so that we can sit around in our complacency so that we can experience the changed life that he has called us to, a new purpose to serve him, a new way of being human altogether, even now and with a new home to look forward to. He saved us from our sin so that we could be saved to something new, something better. But those are just benefits still. They're not, they're not the goal. I mean, even heaven, again, that's it's quite a perk. But it's, it's not the goal. God is the goal. And we see that smack dab right in the middle of this speech. Deliverance for. It's deliverance for him. For this, this God who created us. I mean, what, are we, what are we saved for? Verse, verse 7, right there, the middle verse. God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Why do we exist? Why did God bother rescuing us? Why are you a Christian? It's all for him. That we might be his and that he might be ours so that we would know that Yahweh, that this God, that he is the true God, the one who calls us, the thing that we long for most, the thing that God wants more, most for us is himself. And he offers himself freely to us. And, and if you're, you know, not quite convinced here. I mean, yeah, this looks pretty when you write it out, you know, and it's right, it's, you know, it begins, ends, in the middle is all about this God, Yahweh, that we may know. Um, but if you're still sort of like, is that really, is that really it? Um, just look at this entire story. Because uh, this isn't the only place God says something like this. That, this is in chapter 6, verse 7, right? Just before the plagues, all the way throughout this entire story until the people cross to the Red Sea. Here, here's some of the things it says. Chapter 7, verse 5. God says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand 
Chapter 6, verse 16, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. I will strike the water in the Nile. 8, verse 10, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. 8, 22, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. 9, 14, I will send all my plagues on you, Pharaoh, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. 9, 16, why is Pharaoh king? For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. 9.29, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. 10.2, I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians. That you may know that I am the Lord. 11.7, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. 14.4, I will get glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And 14.18, the end of this story. God says, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Anybody notice a little bit of a theme in this story? Salvation from and to. It just isn't enough. It's not enough. It's not enough to give us what we truly need, what we truly long for, because what we were created for was not simply these things. We were created for this God who who loves us, who longs to be in a relationship with us, to know us and to be known by us. That is why we exist. And until we grasp that, until we begin to hold on to that, until we get God, we will never be satisfied. And you might not believe that, Because we spend most of our lives trying to hide from it, trying to fill our lives with anything else that we think will possibly satisfy when the answer is right there for us. God offers us himself, the very thing we were created for. That's how we were designed. It is in our DNA. And until we have him, until we get him, we will never know the satisfaction that we were created for. And God knows that. That's, That's why he talks like this. He knows that. He knows how we were made, and he knows that we will be miserable without him. I mean, what do, you, what do you get when you give your life to Christ? I mean, a lot, right? I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of benefits. Not that, not that the Christian life is easy by any means or that we're all happy all the time. That's, that's not it at all. But it comes with a lot of benefits. But the most important, we get God. And until that relationship is restored, we will not be happy. We can't be happy because we're created for him. Pastor John Piper wrote a book called God is the Gospel. And it's really about the same idea, uh, that, that God himself is the highest gift that the gospel offers. I mean, the greatest promise that we have is God himself. And in this, this book, Piper asks a question, honestly, that haunts me. I mean, it haunts me when I first read this question. It still haunts me today. Here's what he says. He says, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauty you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? I mean, it sounds like a decent place doesn't it? But what Piper is saying there, if we answer yes to that question, yeah, you know, all those benefits. What he's saying is if we answer yes, we have completely missed it. 
We've loved God's benefits and not God. We've trusted in the gifts and we haven't trusted in the giver. And we know this, right? If we trust anything in place of Christ, no matter how great those benefits might be, if we trust anything in place of Christ, if we can look at a place like that and call it heaven and say, yeah, I'd still be satisfied. If that describes us, I mean, what what he's trying to get at is we won't be there if we're okay with a heaven like that. Because we haven't trusted in him. And besides, really, if if, if this book is right, even that, as good as it might sound, no more pain, just joy and happiness, as good as it might sound, it's not gonna cut it. Because we weren't created simply for the good life, for comfort and relationship and all those things, which are really important. We're created for him. And if he's not there, it doesn't matter what else is because we will just do what we've done most of our lives, right? We will take all of God's good gifts and we will begin to worship them. We'll turn them into our idols. We'll look at them to give us what only God can give us. We were created for him. And without him, we are nothing. And we will still be searching you know, longing to fill that hole in our lives with anything and everything. We will never rest until we have God. And ultimately, really, isn't that, isn't that what hell is? I mean, hell is the place where God is not. And where he is not, there is no rest. No peace, no joy. Because he is the goal. So do you have him? Do you have God? Do you, do you know him? Really know him. Not just know about him, right? But know him. Because this makes all the difference. If God is the goal, if he's our goal, it changes everything. It changes our, our, our other goals. It changes our expectations. It changes our lives. I mean, do you see how narcissistic we are? I mean, even our approach to God is fundamentally selfish. We don't want him. We want what we can get from him. I mean, Pharaoh, think about Pharaoh in this story. I mean, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they respond to God with a hard heart. I'm always struck by that when I read this story because, I mean, just think about that. Pharaoh witnessed more of Yahweh than you and I can even dream. Saw it all. And yet at the end of the story, Pharaoh's the one who is still the slave. Slave to his own arrogant passions. Slaves to his own sin and ultimately it cost him his life as the waters covered him in the Red Sea. And for some of us, for some of us, it really doesn't matter how much evidence of God we get. For some of us, we don't believe because we just don't want to believe. I mean, if, if God is the last thing you want, then he's the last thing you're going to get. But the Israelites on the other hand. They, they respond, at least eventually, they respond with, with tender hearts. Not right away. In fact, if we were to keep reading in this story in chapter 6, they don't, they don't believe. They're like, Moses, you're crazy, okay? Egypt is big. We don't, we don't know this Yahweh of whom you speak, right? It takes a while for them to begin to see that this is the God who rescues. This is the one who will lead them out. But they do end up trusting in him. I mean, think about even the trust that they had to eat this Passover meal. I mean, what a strange meal that was. 
It's their protection from the 10th plague, right? God said they're, they're to eat it with their staff in their hand and their bags all packed because at a moment's notice, they're out of there. They're leaving Egypt. And in doing so, they killed the lamb to, to eat and they put his blood over their doorstep. And in doing so, it says the angel of death would pass over them. And, and by faith, their eldest sons would be spared, that they would, they would live and be able to leave. And think about the trust that, that would take. Or even the trust it would take to actually leave Egypt. It's a terrible home, but it's what they know, right? And to go and to, to leave this, this incredible place, uh, to walk between the huge walls of the, of the Red Sea with the entire Egyptian army chasing behind you. Uh, the Israelites weren't perfect. Hey, we'll see that next week, Right? Right away, right? It's like three days after, and they're, they're complaining and, and moaning about who is this God and what has he brought us out here just to die? I mean, they, they're not perfect. But at least at this moment, they trust in their God. And this story, it ends in, in 1431, and it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. Will we respond to God with the same tender hearts? Let me just mention three sort of quick responses as we think about this story. Three things that I was just struck with this week as I studied this text again. Um, first thing to do, uh, for me, I know, and I've been trying to do this all week. First, ask the hard question. Why am I a Christian? Really? Why do I believe? Why am I in church? Why have I embraced? Why? Ask yourself that. Is it, is it because you want to be re- reunited with loved ones when you die? Is it because you want to raise your kids with a few decent morals? Is it because you like the idea of forgiveness or hope? I mean, all these are good things. They're important things, but they're benefits. They're, they're, not, they're not the goal. God is the goal. Which really kind of leads to the, the second one there. If, if, if that's not the case in your life, and for, I'm guessing for many of us, it's not, at least not all the time, that, that God is our goal. We struggle with that. So the second, second thing is to realign our goals. To, to begin thinking, what would it look like for me to live my life as if God was really my goal? In fact, this week I wrote on my white, whiteboard in my office, like often jot notes up there, things I want to remember. I just wrote simply, God is my goal. Um, not because that it's always true, but because I want it to be true in my life. God is my goal. What, what would it look like For for God to be my goal in work and church, what would it look like for God to be my goal at home, uh, with friends, when I'm alone, my hobbies? What would it look like for you to be able to say in every single area of your life, every conversation, every moment, to say, God is my goal? And if we begin to, to realign in such a way, and for some of us, probably for many of us, it starts, maybe you can't say God is my goal. Maybe you say my goal is to make God my goal, okay? For some of us, we've got to start there, but what would that look like for you? And if that is your desire, then it only makes sense for us that we would get to know this God, because that, that is the goal, right? To know him, to be in relationship with him. And so what are you doing to get to know him now in this moment? I mean, are you reading his word daily, expectantly? Are you, are you praying? Are you listening? Are you obeying? Are you spending time with others who really seem to know him, to get to know this God who is our goal? I mean, we were created for him, and any attempt to do otherwise is a denial of who we are, and satisfaction will always be out of our reach. 
Realign your goals. And finally, the third thing, and this one almost just sounds too simplistic to even say, but I think it's something we see in this, in this story. It's just to trust and obey. Right? Like the, you know the old song, trust and obey for there's no other way, right? Some of you know that. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, but to trust and obey. Um, and the reason I think it's, it's so unique in this story, or as I think about making God my goal, trust and obedience just seem to make sense if God is my goal. I mean, think about trust, for example. I mean, if my goal is not comfort or my own personal happiness or respect or whatever, but if God is actually my goal, then I can get to know God in any situation, comfortable or uncomfortable. I can get to know him in the hospital. I can get to know him in unemployment or loneliness or depression. I can get to know him anywhere. And so I can hopefully trust him. And the same really is with obedience, right? If I actually believe deep within me that God is the highest good, that the greatest delight I could possibly grab onto, then I don't, I don't need to run after money or greed or sex or, you know, even family. I mean, good things, right? But I don't have to let those things define me, what people think of me or approval. And if, and if God is my, then I, then I can't obey, And the more we trust him and obey him, the better we get to know him. And the more we know him, the easier it becomes to trust him and obey him. Well, let's be honest, though. I mean, for many of us, this is hard, right? Probably for all of us, to some extent. But for some, in particular, God isn't your goal. Uh, In fact, he's, you know, maybe like way, way down on the list if he appears on the list at all. And even for those of us who really want God to be our goal, we struggle with this. I love what the Apostle Paul, the example that he gives in the New Testament, in the book of Philippians. Because Paul looks back on all of his life, everything that he achieved, everything that was, made him worthy of, of respect and approval in that culture, all, the good, all of his self-righteousness. And, and he, he says, in reflection, he says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. What is more, he says, I consider everything a loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is through faith. And he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is the ultimate self-revelation of God. Jesus revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush. He revealed himself to the Israelites in in the plagues and the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea. He revealed himself as Yahweh, and now this same God reveals himself to us in the God-man Jesus. Yeshua is his name, which literally just means Yahweh saves. And our God, he doesn't just hear our cry. He doesn't just remember his promises. Our God came, came to bring the rescue that we're desperate from, and not just from slavery, but from sin and death and hell. And not just to the the promised land, as, as important as that was for the people, but it was still a place where they would struggle and battle. But our God, through Jesus, brings us to this new kind of life that we begin to experience now. Yes, we still struggle, but I have hope for a return to a kind of Eden, the new creation, heaven. 
And Jesus doesn't just tell us to pass this, you know, sacrifice this Passover lamb. So the angel of, of death would pass over us. He himself is our Passover lamb. He is the one whose blood covers us, just like it covered their doorstep, and through him, the angel of death passes over us. And we are able to know and experience this God. Jesus died so that we, we could know him and love him. And he rose again so that we could know him and love him forever. He is our goal. Let's pray together. God, help these words be true of us. God, I pray that we would long to make you our goal. And God, I pray that you'd meet us wherever we are this morning. God, I pray that for those who honestly just really want nothing or very little to do with you, maybe like your benefits, but that's about it. God, I pray that you would convict and challenge, that you'd meet them where they are before their hearts become too hard. And for those of us who honestly, we, we would like to make you our goal, but it's just, there's so many other things in the way. God, I pray that you would convict us. Help us to really believe that your way is better, that only in you, only when we get you, God, will we find our satisfaction. God, I pray that you would meet with us. And God, we love you and we trust in you for these things. Amen.